Hello, film fans, and welcome to A Very Good Year, a new podcast where we invite a guest, a filmmaker or writer or comedian or actor, anyone who loves movies, really, uh, to pick their favorite year of movies and to talk to us all about that year. My name is Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. Our guest today hails from the great city of Boston, where he is a film critic for WBUR's Arts and Culture and a contributing writer over at North Shore Movies, as well as the primary author of the classic corner column at a site called Crooked Marquee. Um, His writing has also appeared in Metro, The Village Voice, Rolling Stone, The Boston Herald, Philadelphia Weekly, Time Out New York, RodGeriber.com, and many more. Folks, it's our pal Sean Burns. Hi, Sean. What's up, guys? How you doing, man? Good, good. Happy to be here. It's good to have you, uh, and exciting to uh, to have a to have a good pal on. When we first talked about this, I had a pretty good feeling that this would be the year that you would choose because it's also a year wherein we have something in common. So, Sean, why did you choose this? What year did you choose, and why did you choose it? Well, I originally chose nineteen ninety nine, but that was already spoken <laughs> for. So. <laughs> I said I might as well do the do the year this Bailey guy was born because uh, <laughs> I, I was also uh, came into being in 1975. In the year 1975, two miserable bastards uh, in separate <laughs> places were born, and and all the pain began. Um, also, the year they gave us Saturday Night Live and Born to Run. There you go. It's not. A, it's not a bad year, all things considered, <laughs> at least in terms of culture. Michael, Michael, tell us otherwise when we get to headlines. <laughs> um, to, the the thing that I found most interesting as we've as we've talked to uh, to our guests and especially film critics and film historians and film fans is, you know, obviously you were not watching these movies in the theater when they came out, um, un- unless there's a story you need to tell. Um, oh, well, actually, uh, my mother did go into labor with me while she was watching Freebie and the Bean. Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that explains so much. Yeah, yeah. The specific the specific movie. I've, 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 the closest I got to that is that uh, I did. my parents did see Jaws while I was pregnant, and my mom required, they, they required my mom to bring in a doctor's note. That it was okay for her to see a, a scary movie while, you know, whatever she was, six, eight months pregnant. Um, well, uh, the funny thing is, like, you know, 30-something years later, the Brattle Theater here in Boston was showing Freebie and the Bean, and I was going to go. And one of my friends was like, you can't, you'll die. <laughs> <laughs> he made me call him when I got home from the movie. <laughs> The circle of life. It's beautiful. Right. It begins and ends with James Conn in a crazy racist Richard Rush comedy. <laughs> so tell me, wait, do, is there more to that, to, to the story of, of, before we move on, is there a full story you'd like to tell or that we got? No, I mean, you know, that my parents finally saw the ending. I bought them the DVD years later when it was released. <laughs> See, that's a good son. That's a good son. A lot of, a lot of. A lot of loose ends to, to get tied up there. Um, so then what was what what was the sort of uh, 
a young cinephile journey that led you back to the cinema of the seventies and to 75 in particular, like what, what brought you to, to that decade and then to choose this particular year to talk about tonight. Well, I mean, you and I grew up in the desert of eighties movies where yep. and, uh, there was a channel, the UHF channel 38. They had this nightly show called the movie loft hosted by a guy called Dana Hersey. And he would mm-hmm. show all classic movies or seventies stuff. And, you know, he was this guy like in an attic with a bunch of film cans wearing a big fuzzy sweater. And that's how I saw like (laughs) Chinatown and the Deer Hunter and all these movies I really shouldn't have been watching because I was like 11 years old. Right. And and as God intended them in one three, three, one on a tiny image with commercial interruptions and uh, uh, often unedited because it was UHF. Nice. Nice. They would just have to say like parental discretion is advised. I remember I saw it wasn't on the movie left. It was a different UHF channel, but they showed Taxi Driver and I taped it and um, it had all of, you know, everything from Taxi Driver, but it was cut down to 90 minutes, 96 minutes for time. Oh my god. Okay. So that's always how that was how I knew Taxi Driver. So years later I went to see it with the Brattle and there were so many more scenes with Albert Brooks. <laughs> that That's oh what god. they had cut, the 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 filler. Yeah. Holy <laughs> shit. The wacky comedy subplot was gone. Yeah. They kept the scene with Marty in the cab. That could air fine at, you know, 8:30 at night. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay, so what what makes 75 in particular special in your eyes? You know, it's an embarrassment of riches. The the any I could have picked 76 just as easy, you know. I just figured we were both born then that would be a funny little hook. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, yeah, this definitely. particular era of American film like you know, it's it's so rewarding. You can keep you can pick really anything. Right. Well, you know, obviously we're we're starting to get into this era now. You know, we've had two or three guests sort of simultaneously uh, plucking uh, out of the out of the mid seventies. I'm and and everyone I think sort of has a theory as to why why the movies were so good right then and and why we'll probably never achieve that again. Do you have any anything to float uh, on that subject? I mean, I love um, Paul Schrader's ideas. Like we had better audiences. Mm. People wanted to be mm. challenged for some, you know, they, the kind of people now who stay home and watch prestige television used to go to the theaters and expect movies to engage with the world in the ways, unfortunately, now movies are considered just for escapism purposes. That, that scans. Um, <laughs> what, what, what was, what was happening? I mean, do, do you ever see a point where it gets this good again? in terms of mainstream movie going. No, we came, you know, we're like Tony Soprano. We came in at the end. <laughs> Fair. All right. I don't see how people could get retrained to go see something like Nashville and make it a cultural event again, you know, or. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, we're going to get into that and we're going to get into those and we're going to get into the particular pictures that, that sort of leapt to the top of, of, a really pretty amazing uh, release year. But before we do, uh, to sort of set the scene for, for you know, these movies, when you look at what was going on in 1975, these movies kind of were escapism. Uh, Mike is going to walk us through what was happening in the world this year. Here's headlines. 1975 was not great. 
Nope. Uh, outside of the theater. It started with Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and John Mitchell being found guilty in the Watergate drama. So that seems good that they were getting in trouble. But I think most people felt like they were just sort of the tip of a very rotten iceberg. Uh, we're also at the end of the war in Vietnam and we're at the, you know, we've, we're at the end of a long series of CIA assassinations and just other government fuckery. So trust was at an all time low. And, yeah. you know, we're talking about sort of, of the post-war generation, you know, a lot of people who had fought in World War II in Vietnam uh, or in, in Korea who were sort of running things now. And that's my favorite explanation for why movies were better than was because people had been through harder shit. And they needed, you know, a little bit harder, like you go through war and, and sort of the depression and deprivation in that way. And you're looking for a little bit more from your uh, art and mm -hmm. that we are sort of a softer generation because we haven't been through anything like that. And so, like, we can do like superhero shit and just sort of sit around yeah. and, and like try and make it seem real or like try and talk about how it really attaches to real emotions. And we won't laugh the notion of, like, the good CIA guy, like, clean off the fucking screen. <laughs> right. So I think that, you know, we're really seeing that 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 sort of, of cultural moment come to a head in a yeah. lot of ways. Yep. West German politician Peter Lorenz was kidnapped by a radical leftist group. And then he was released after their demands were met, which is, like, the only reason I mentioned that is just sort of there was a lot of you know, super radical sort of hijack a plane shit going down. Right. Yeah. And, and world governments hadn't really decided that they weren't playing that game yet. So sometimes it was still working. So there was a lot <laughs> right. of, you know, sort of hijacking a Brinks truck and, and breaking people out of prison and shit like that. Right. But 1975 was also the year Spain stopped fighting to keep their colonies in Africa and Portugal lost their empire basically. So there was a lot of like shit left to hijack a plane over. Right. It yeah. wasn't just sort of, you know, a, there was still a lot of things to, to be protesting about in that very sort of violent. The, the, the civil war in Algeria started, et cetera, et cetera. The Khmer Rouge also took over in Cambodia uh, and their, you know, their standards for killing people were very low. Like if you had glasses, you know, so they were on a rampage. Um, I'm sorry. Francisco they, Franco died. Whoa, 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 no, 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 no. You don't just blow past that, Mike. What do you mean? They, <laughs> were, they were killing people because they wore glasses. That was part of their, you know, they were trying to have like a fully working class revolution. And that meant getting rid of all the intellectuals. And if you had glasses, that meant that you were an intellectual. That's what I, that's, I only raised that. Like it's okay. ridiculous okay. and it's ridiculous right. in a way that people will make a joke out of it frequently. My point is that the bar was really fucking low. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've seen swimming to Cambodia. I know. <laughs> All right. I'd also like to know, cause it is an audio only podcast that Mike currently wearing glasses. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I do have a stake in this. <laughs> First against the wall. <laughs> you know and we had just left vietnam so like not only is this stuff yeah. sort of happening but we had just we were participating in it is a yeah. part of my point oh. also when we're talking about oh, the we sure were in this yeah. Country. yeah um francisco franco died in 1975 so obviously that's good hold on and launch the best running gag of snl's first season <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair enough that's how i know when he died Yes, <laughs> that's like my so, that's like my how I know about Francisco Franco. <laughs> See, SNL does the good things for the world sometimes. They do. Or at least they did. They did. Uh, Microsoft was founded in April, uh, and the first monster truck was created, the aptly named Bigfoot. 
Uh, so children of the 80s will remember that. Because it's just one atrocity after another. <laughs> <laughs> he said at the beginning, dude, he warned you. It was really, it was good in the theater, but ouch. Uh, jazz yeah. pianist Keith Jarrett recorded the improvised record, The Colton Concert, which is the number one selling piano record of all time. So give that a spin once uh, if you want to be confused. In my opinion, okay. the writing about that record is much better than the record itself. Uh, and okay. it's a little weird when you finally put it on after reading about how great it is. So that happened in 1975. Great. Uh, in sports news, Jason will relate to because they made a movie about it. I'm listening. Muhammad Ali beat Joe Frazier, literally and figuratively, in the thriller. The thriller in Manila, a fine yes. documentary feature, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Cincinnati Reds beat the Boston Red Sox four games to three to win the World Series. As I was saying you, about atrocities. Well, you. I, <laughs> Did you just put that in because Sean was the guest? Like, just own your cruelty. Just own it. I mean, I thought he might have a, a, a comment, you know. Okay. Uh, I had a record called Red Sox 75 that was like highlights from the season that I used to listen to as a kid. And yeah, oh, it, it didn't have a good ending. I was going to say, why would you put that out? <laughs> I don't understand sports random. Go ahead. Side one is really good. (laughs) (laughs) It's the kind of blue of sports records. Okay, here we go. (laughs) I knew I was fishing. I didn't realize I'd pull up something that sweet. Uh, In the first ever Cricket World Cup, West Indies beat Australia by 17 runs. Yeah, I didn't have that record. (laughs) (laughs) Weirdly, I did. I I don't know where it even came from. It's like, Mom, what is this? The accents are amazing. Yeah. Uh, Emmett Peters won the Iditarod with lead dogs Nugget and Digger. And Arthur... Mike had that record. Mike had the Nugget and Digger record. (laughs) That was mine. It was a lot of, like, mush, mush and barking. Not that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean to... I didn't mean to talk over, like, a really important sports milestone. And I'm like, let me see if I can milk this this record thing one more... (laughs) One more... We're going to go yeah. back to the well one more time. Let me see. Let me see. I think I can make the trip. Mike, what was your, what was the last thing? Sorry. Arthur Ashe won at Wimbledon in part of his, uh, yes, his record breaking and fantastic career of which there are several movies. And so I'm sure you've seen at least once one of them. That's headlines. Thank you, Mike. And, uh, and with that done, it's time to take a look at our guest, Sean Burns, five t- favorite movies from the year 1975 so sean here we go and what is your number five pick for the year 1975 sean uh number five was i picked one flew over the cuckoo's nest Ah, oh, come on you're not gonna say that now you're not gonna say that now you're gonna pull that hen house shit now when the vote the chief just voted it was 10 to 9 now i want that television set turned on right now i don't think he's overly psychotic no i want something to- i think he's dangerous <laughs> jesus i mean you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Well, you're not. Because I, I had a very strange experience with this film recently. I sort of grew up with it. It was one of those movies that was always around, but I got right. really obsessed with in high school for obvious right. reasons. That's when everyone gets obsessed with it, right? Like, I'd, like, stolen a copy of it from the school library. Remember the one with the black cover with Jack and the hat on it? Yep. And, you know, I, it, the, the hat that Mike's wearing right now. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Perhaps also not coincidentally. <laughs> but you know, you have these relationships with films over time. But you get to a point where the movie you've seen it so many times, you feel like you're done with it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've always thought of it very fondly, and I hadn't watched it in years. And then when uh, when Louise Fletcher died recently, I thought I haven't watched this in ages, and I I threw it on. It everything came rushing back to me. I was like, oh my goodness this was like a formative film for my identity why don't i watch this every day (laughs) and perhaps not in a good way too that the film influenced certain anti-establishment attitudes that i carried through my life that's what i was gonna ask yeah what is the how 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 formative was it and at what point did you see did you see the movie initially because that's that's key to that I mean, it's it's strange with these films because so many of them were just always around. And that was mm-hmm. one I remember. It was just always sure. on, on television in the afternoons. And it was, you know, I mean, Jack was such a ubiquitous icon at that point when we were kids and growing up and first discovering films. Sure. It had been long enough, you know, when you don't watch a movie for a long time and then you're watching it again and it it. it comes back to you so powerfully and i was like basically like standing up at the end in my living room (laughs) (laughs) do you think i mean has have has the way you 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 see that film and the lens that you view it through changed you know seeing it in your 40s as opposed to seeing it in your teens and, and in what way if so well, uh, you know, there's a certain internet personality we know called Zodiac Motherfucker, who uh, I believe he put it best was when we were growing up, all the kids wanted to be McMurphy, and now they all want to be Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> do you do you do you sympathize with her more now when you watch it? Oh, I mean, I think you know she's a she's a symbol of this authoritarianism, and you know this system of order to crush but i mean it's a brilliant performance because you know she's very touching Mm -hmm. i don't think like some people have opined that well she's actually the hero and it's this awful toxic masculinity that's destroying her no i mean she ruins (laughs) but it is i mean it's a there's that business where you know she the 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 ward is destroyed and she like demands that her hat be given to her and she's holding the hat and it's like the most violated i've ever seen someone look (laughs) because these guys messed with their hat right right um the 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 thing that i remember so keenly about this movie as a teen was that you know i when i was getting into roger ebert and reading the movie home companion and there's it's famously one of his like not four star reviews of like what everybody considers a four star movie you know kind of like alongside godfather 2 and he has that objection to the fishing boat sequence, which he feels is this sort of flight of fancy that unmoors the picture from uh, from the, the the reality that that we're sort of grinding through in the rest of it. And I'm I'm always interested to talk with you know with people who love this movie about where you land on that particular criticism. Uh, that always bugged me about the movie because when you read the book, it's like an officially sanctioned field trip. Okay. For the inmates. So they could have just done that, right? If I right. remember correctly, I haven't read the book since, you know, I was shoplifting from the school library, but it's been a while <laughs> since I read it. Right. But I believe it was a sanctioned trip. So. And why do you think that 
<laughs> Why do you think that change was made? What do you think the the, the logic know, to give like a wacky interlude before it becomes the most depressing fucking movie ever made? <laughs> <laughs> Fair. That's that 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 scans. All right, uh, Sean Burns, what is your number four movie for the year nineteen seventy five? Uh, funny you would mention, you know, the most depressing movie ever made because it's 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 Night Moves, the Arthur Penn film noir with Gene Hackman as the biggest loser detective who can't figure out things that are right in front of his face. <laughs> He's a private investigator. My daughter Delhi. Would you believe Delilah? Well, she's gone. How long gone? Two weeks. Go find her. Making a living. Well, let's say 125 a day in legitimate expenses. From other people's lives. You can get cheaper. Can I get better? You're hired. Making a mess of his own. God, you're really prime, Ellen. You know that? I catch you screwing another guy and you attack my lifestyle! Your lifestyle has nothing to do with it! Night moves. <laughs> Just what, um marvelous exercise in just exhaustion and uh, you yeah. want to talk about like the great 70s malaise movies yeah this is <laughs> and the great 70s genre deconstruction movies like mm -hmm. they're all dipping you know toes into sort of exploding iconography but like i i really think there are not a lot that do it as as thoroughly as Night Moves, and and for the reasons that that you mention, um, what's your what, what's your sort of connection to this one? What do you remember about first seeing it, and sort of what connects with you about it? This I remember very distinctly seeing in college, and my roommate and I had rented it because we'd read so much about it. It's one of those you know mythical movies that nobody saw when it came out, and then if you write book about films. 20 years later it's the one everyone talks about right and we rented it and i remember just the ending like turning the lights on in our shitty alphabet city apartment after it was over and the two of us like looking at each other and pouring drinks and being like, what the hell even just happened yeah yeah and it was funny because i showed it recently at this series of uh, oh, right, programmed right, at the right. Somerville theater that, that Jason came to the, a couple weeks before. And I showed that in hustle. Also another spectacularly depressing 1975 movie. And everybody was just mad at me. At the end <laughs> of the I get this angry text from my friend Tyler, like a you know, couple great date movies burns. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about this Gene Hackman performance, because I think when people talk about his best work, this weirdly is one that does not often get mentioned, but I think it's right up there. I think it's, it's one of the best things he ever did. Yeah. And it's really dialed down from the way he, you know, he's not as boisterous and he's, yeah. it's funny because he's playing an ex football player and you think he would have leaned more into the macho, but like, he's kind of like a, very vain dandy guy who eats fondue <laughs> after sex right it's like at the foot of the bed am i remembering that post, post coital fondue yes yeah yeah i thought i had that right the 70s were amazing i bet they had yeah. a water bed <laughs> i mean you know this I, I i i will not resist the opportunity to plug i wrote a, a short critical book called it's okay with me that was about this whole sort of movement in the 70s you know of of deconstructionist private eye movies 
mm-hmm. and you know, which were approached from like seven different directions. Um, what do you think it was about that era that because there were a, just a shitload of them? What do you think it was about that era in particular that that made this such a juicy subject for so many filmmakers? Well, it was the movies they grew up with. You know, mm-hmm. And then they got a chance to pick them apart in a far more permissive. I mean, there's so many elements of the big sleep and night moves where, you know, the gel bait, Melanie Griffith, is, <laughs> it's just always like kryptonite for me. Um, yeah. And for everybody else in the movie, there's <laughs> my a great friend, line when the guy, the guy says, look at her, there ought to be a law. And Hackman says, there is, <laughs> there is, <laughs> there is, <laughs> it's, it's maybe my favorite line in the movie. Um, <laughs> So that explains why, you know, there were so many genre deconstructions, but like there's exponentially more private eye movies than there are like Western gangster, whatever, whatever, whatever was what was this, you know, a, a result of sort of the la- the losing of faith and authority. Is this all tied up in Watergate? Like what is what is that about? Yeah, I mean, the, the, obviously there's got to be some Watergate stuff and also like the the private eye movies are the best anti-authoritarian. Now we just all have cop shit, which is basically <laughs> fascist garbage or superheroes, which are also fascist, but the private right. eye, the thing I love about old private eye movies from the thirties and forties is like how dumb the cops are in the private eyes. Are oh, so God. contemptuous of them. <laughs> Those movies hate cops so much. So here's these idiots that are going to come in and arrest the wrong person. Right. Obviously. And so I think, you know, it's, that form obviously with the private it's great if you want to question authority figures the books that a lot of those movies are based on i mean the cops are universally corrupt like even yeah. the ones who aren't you know just terribly incompetent are just as, as corrupt <laughs> as they can possibly be even when the yeah. character who you're following is a cop the reason right. you're following a cop around is to see how corrupt the cops are right and, those <laughs> are the, and i mean i feel like that's that's one thing that is even more present in the books than it is in the movies. And it's all over the yeah. movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so. All right. Well, night moves is one worth checking out. Um, uh, and we and- have to mention the most famous line where he's watching the game and the woman says, who's winning. And he said, nobody's winning. One side's losing slower than the other, which just you know <laughs> sums up the film in a nutshell. <laughs> my, my dude, that sums up the seventies in a right. nutshell. <laughs> Alan Sharp wrote the screenplay. Just every line is a banger. And you get to watch Gene Hackman beat the shit out of James Woods, which Which is fun, which is so much fun now. (laughs) Just a delight. It, 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 this is like way more fun now than it was 20 years ago watching it for the first time. It was a completely different experience this time around. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Sean Burns, what is your number three movie for the year 1975? Number three is Nashville. Yeah! Robert Altman's Nashville is five days in the lives of 24 unforgettable people. That's a lot of characters, so listen closely. Lily Tomlin is a gospel singer who strays just a bit when she has a one-night stand with Keith Carradine, a hot young rock singer. Ned Beatty is her husband who doesn't suspect a thing. Henry Gibson is the number one country and western singer who's being tempted to run for governor. His sidekick, Barbara Baxley, drinks a bit and talks a lot. And his son, Dave Peel, is sort of attracted to Geraldine Chaplin, who plays a star-struck reporter from BBC TV. Robert Altman, crushing it. I don't know how to describe Nashville, except I feel like if you wanted, if you asked me if a movie contained the entirety of human experience, right, that's pretty much it. <laughs> right. 
It's everything. Well, yeah. And it's and it's rare that you have a movie where you just like so fully feel what a filmmaker was was working towards. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the, the like this movie is like the event horizon that began five years or, you know, five years earlier with MASH. Like it was all sort of on its way to that. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's the, and it's just I had this great like expanding relationship with it too because you probably had like a similar one where you know I first saw it on like the the pan and scan VHS double tape so, baby yeah, the terrible like mono sound and yep. then like oh I got the DVD and I was like oh my god there's all this other shit happening then I saw it <laughs> in the theater yeah. Uh, and then like, I was like, oh, my God, there's so much more happening that I didn't know. And then I really recently saw the new 4K restoration at the Somerville. And I was like, holy shit, there's even more. Like every time I see this movie, it just gets bigger and louder. And there's like you can constantly look at any frame in that movie and there's something going on in the background. We're like, I never noticed that before. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you I've actually weirdly had maybe even. I don't know. It's a step beyond the last one, but maybe at least to the side about midway through. Um, when we were in Paris, um, like about 10 or 12 years ago, the movie theater next door to our hotel was showing Nashville uh, on the 4th of July. Um, oh, and we were there with my in-laws and my father-in-law had never seen it. So we went to see it in a Parisian theater where it's still in <laughs> it's still in English. But then there's like a line of French subtitles and then a line of the English they've determined is important enough to subtitle because you can't <laughs> catch everything. You just can't. It's like it's just like, you know, a percentage. Um, yeah. And so that, you know, uh, is another sort of new way to, to, to see that one and to see it, you know, with a French audience and with the you know, it's like one of these like classic, you know, Parisian rep houses or whatever so you know the nice the nice lady who comes up before Nashville, you know and it's just like cool here we go they're all really into the geraldine chaplin character <laughs> big, time. <laughs> big time the thing and the thing i always that i also always want to talk about with nashville is the pauline kale review because for me, you know, it's one of those ones that like her her detractors love to uh, to kick up as like proof of how, you know, semi corrupt she was that she like, you know, reviewed it from like a work print and uh, and went too too hyperbolic for it and so forth and so on. And for me, like those are my favorite reviews of hers like that and Bonnie and Clyde and Last Tango, like the the when she, her most electrifying stuff is the stuff where she can like barely contain how much she loved the fucking movie. And yeah, I, think, I mean, so she saw it before everyone. So they're mad at her. Yes. yes. <laughs> and yes. have you ever read anything better about that movie? Like there's no review no. that sums it up better. <laughs> no. No. Well, if you're him, yeah. don't you want her to see it? Exactly. Yes. I mean, like, don't, I mean, like, that's exactly what you want to come out in the world. Why wouldn't you make that happen? Yes, but you're like taking way, a risk. The way Cassavetes used to hide his movies from her, and like he like stole her <laughs> shoes so she couldn't get into a screening that day. <laughs> this was like the opposite. Bob was like, "Just come over, Pauline." <laughs> 
I mean, she could be played like that. You know, Peckinpah did the same thing with her. He was like, oh, you got to see this one, honey. <laughs> yeah. But to the same extent, you know, he was taking something of a risk because she hadn't loved everything he'd made. She'd given yeah. him a couple of bad reviews at that time. Like it was. a, And if she hadn't liked it, boy, she she'd have been just as vociferous about it. But yeah, <laughs> I, I still think it's not only a, the best piece of writing about that movie, but maybe the best piece of writing about his movies, about what makes his style aesthetic his construction uh consistently from movie to movie so good the way the characters surprise you is wonderful yes. I mean, this henry gibson character is such a joke for so yes. much of the film he's this ridiculous jumpsuited figure with this hilarious hair and and yes. then like at the end who rises to the occasion like i mean it's right. this incredibly moving moment God, yes, it is. It is. I never understood like when they say like Altman's taking pot shots because Altman takes pot shots at people who deserve it. Yeah, but, you know the idea that like the movie's like joke making a joke of these people. Like look at Haven Hamilton. Like when they're talking yeah. about him running for senator, I was like, I think he would be pretty good. Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. All right. And then I always also like to mention just my favorite weirdo crossover is the fact that if you get into the specifics of it, OC and Stiggs is a Nashville sequel. I don't, I don't understand <laughs> it. I don't like it, but it's, that's, that's extremely Robert Altman to be like, yeah, I'll just connect this. Maybe my worst narrative film to my best. <laughs> Cause why not? <laughs> It's all the same with him. You know, it's all the one it big is. sandcastle. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. So, yeah, the, the production company was called Sandcastle. Like, it's just. Yeah, it's a nice touch. All right, Sean, number two on the big 1975 list. Well, of course, we have to have Jaws. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion. And without logic, it lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. I, mean, yeah. I don't even know. I don't know what you're supposed to say about it, Jaws. Like that, mm-hmm. it's just a perfect movie. It's just this like structural engineering, absolute masterpiece that happened entirely by accident. Yes, because shit didn't work. Yes, but every line of dialogue, every scene, every character beat somehow pays off, and it is that sort of wonderful. Um, accidental perfection which you can't you can't count on and you can't but also there are just some filmmakers who facilitate that and who can roll with those punches the way he did yeah and uh, i mean there's probably because of all the production delays that the actors had to sit around coming up with business i mean there have never been characters in another spielberg film like these three guys right they're so fleshed out and just wonderful. And even the whole, I mean, it's a funny segue from Altman into this, because the first hour of this of Jaws is a really funny Altman movie set on Martha's Vineyard. Yes. Yes. You get the whole vision of all these crackpots in the town and this stupid mayor. I don't think that's funny. I don't think that's funny. <laughs> that's my favorite 
my favorite of the townspeople is that lady with the glasses. They get the karate chopping the fence posts. <laughs> <laughs> they keep karateing the fence posts. Yeah, but every room they walk into in that movie has like like five different people, and they're all doing really funny things. It's another. Yes. It's a, and that well, was and in I, IMAX this past summer, and it was fun to watch it. You know, just like look at look at the kooky stuff in the background yeah and i think a lot of that honestly you know the the the, the i think the the sort of unsung hero of that movie the person that doesn't get talked about in terms of his importance to the thing was carl gottlieb because first of all <laughs> he got rid of all the garbage parts of the novel like can you fucking imagine if they had left in the the brody's wife matt hooper fucking affair can you imagine <laughs> what a piece of shit movie that would have been but also the fact that, like this was how old were you like, when you read the book because i was a kid and i was obsessed with the movie and then i read the book and i was like this is awful yeah i think i was 12 or 13 something like that um but they also that carl gottlieb like you know had like an improv comedy background so he's tr so he, so he's fleshing it out in the way that that kind of a brain works you mentioned that you saw the the IMAX re-release. Did you was that straight? Uh, was that two D or did you see it in three D? No, the uh, the IMAX was two D, and then there was a separate three okay. D release. But they didn't do okay. an IMAX three D for whatever okay. reason. So well, I saw the three D just because um, that's what was playing near me, and I I took my my oldest daughter to see it. Um, and I'm usually not a fan of you know the sort of three D post conversion thing mm -hmm. what i found astonishing about the movie in that viewing and that gave me again you know i'm not fucking breaking news here that like spielberg is a good craftsman <laughs> what was striking about it was what a good 3d movie it became just by virtue of the fact that the man can compose a frame properly like mm -hmm. the fact that there were consistently like there was just shit in the frame that they could pop out because that's how you make a frame visually interesting by creating like multiple planes of you know of like objects like filmmaking 101 shit but like the fact that he that he had that eye made that 3d like really pleasurable to watch and not sort of obnoxious or unnecessary in the way that a lot of this after the fact stuff can be. Well, one of the things too, that I appreciate that, like it's a pet peeve of mine with movies. Now where you watch jaws and the house is in that movie. Like people live there. Yes. I mean, Close Encounters was great at this too. There's like toys and shit all over the floor. Yes. Films and even Spielberg's have become very antiseptic where they're very, you know, there's this beautiful production design and the sets look very yeah. nice. And there's not that, there's not that clutter. There's not, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. We had 3D clutter. One of my favorite, maybe my favorite sub, sub, sub genre of film writing is you can find somebody who interprets every problem that we've talked about in the seventies as the shark, you know, fucking Nixon is the fucking shark. The oil embargo is the fucking shark, you know, right. Everything is, you can find, it's a wonderful subgenre. What is the That's shark really stand for? Well, if you want to talk about a feat of structural engineering, like it's great because for an hour, it's a horror movie where everyone's being victimized. And the second hour is an adventure movie where they go kill the motherfucker. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of a Death Wish style revenge movie when you break it down in that way. All so right. You get the satisfactions of both. Yes, 
exactly. It's a revenge-o-matic, as I've been hearing a lot. <laughs> oh, no, don't, don't use that term, please. That makes me cringe. <laughs> Our, uh, I, I, we've now arrived at the, at the finish line. Sean Burns, what is your number one motion picture of the year 1975? The movie most responsible for me deciding I wanted to move to New York City. <laughs> Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> you know something, people? You're going to be remembered the rest of your lives for the day you got held up and kidnapped. At approximately 3 p.m. on August 22, 1972, Sonny Wurzig and Sal Naturale entered the first Brooklyn Savings Bank and attempted a robbery. Nobody move! Get over there! The attempt failed. There's no money here. They picked it up this afternoon. There's only 1100 This is too much. It's for you. What? The police arrived. This is Detective Sergeant Eugene Moretti. What are you doing in there? For the people of the neighborhood, it was a sideshow. Sonny! But for Sonny and Sal, the hostages, and the cops, it was a dog day afternoon. By the great, great Sidney Lumet. Because you wanted to rob banks or because you wanted to get caught in a bank robbery? (laughs) (laughs) Because whatever was going on with all those people in that movie, I said, that's where I need to live. Everyone there is crazy, man. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so when did you first see this one and, and what, what took hold of you about it? I don't remember exactly how old I was, but it was one of those movies that like, it was on TV in the afternoon and like my dad was flipping chat. He's like, Oh, sit down. You're going to want to watch this. <laughs> and he was right. I was, there was a lot of swearing. So I was excited. And I'm like, oh, sure? my God. oh my God, Michael's gay. <laughs> this is crazy <laughs> well where does it land for you in terms of like of the pacino performances because it's absolutely my favorite pacino like it's just everything yeah. i think he's great at like the 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 theatricality and like because sonny is such a people pleaser he yes. cannot maintain the aura of a bad bank robber for like five minutes. He just has to constantly relate to everybody and start being nice to them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's such an, it's a, it's such a sort of, sort of an atypical Pacino performance. He's using like a vocal register that, that is not typical. Um, mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's playing it. He has the theatricality, but it's, it's not an overtly, it's not a flamboyant performance. And that well, it's I funny because you, you no, see him discover the flamboyance. Yes. Yes. Like when he first goes out with the crowd. Yeah. When he first goes yeah. out to the crowd, he's all bashful and stuff. And then when they start cheering, he just yeah. starts like showboating. And every time <laughs> he walks out of the building after it, he's more and more of a fucking ham. Yes. Until they all find out he's gay and turn on him. Yes. And then he's a, he doesn't want anything to do with them anymore because they're all screaming obscenities. <laughs> yes. Um I I think it's you know it is it's it's interesting to think about how like they could have played all of this so much broader uh mm-hmm. and 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 condescended to it or played it comically. Um, and the movie just wouldn't, we wouldn't remember or care about it in the same way. And so much of that is, I think Lumet's just, uh, 
adherence and dedication to naturalism, which he talks about with particular to this movie in a fair amount in the making movies book. But I think is, Mm -hmm. is, is, I mean, he always had that, but the fact that he knew how close to the vest they had to play this is I think really valuable. Well, because you have it's such an outrageous story, mm-hmm. and if you, if you know the real story, they actually toned it down quite a bit. Right, <laughs> right. The real story was even more and way more insane. Yeah. And so for him, you know, it's almost like it was the same thing Freakin did with The Exorcist, where it's like I want to make every person as specific as possible and make right. this relatable. And you know, Dog, do you have that wonderful? It's the greatest opening credits maybe ever. Yes. Yes. Where you're just watching this and it just places you in this world and kind of the movie starts before you even notice. Right. Because that opening music cue, that opening music cue turns out to be diegetic. It's they're playing it on the car radio when they pull up, which is one of my favorite. And it's the last bit of music in the film. Like there's no more music. Yes. It's one of my favorite pieces of sound design in like any movie is that that just subtle little pod down and suddenly it's in that car radio. But the people who would be like wacky, colorful, like you have like carol kane in the bank or the bank manager they're extremely specific characterizations and you know they're, and they're taken seriously that like the woman who gets mad because they're saying the f word yes <laughs> <laughs> and it's not played as a joke She's no like, no and if you've been in new york for five minutes they feel very real they all feel yes. very very yes. real Yes. Yeah. The deeper, the more times I watch that movie, the more my favorite actor in it is the woman who's like uh, the, the, the head of the tellers who won't leave when he wants her to, because her place is there. Her place is there with her girls. That's a very specific type of employee right there. And I know this is like blasphemy against do the right thing, but it's like the best hot day movie. Like it just feels Mm. There was, mm-hmm. there was a great time I was visiting the city and it was at film forum and it was like a 98 degree day and I went to see oh, it damn. there and it was yeah. like, it was like a 3d movie or something. I was just sweating <laughs> like this fat pig and come into the theater all drenched. It was like... <laughs> and there you have it. All right, Sean, I don't think, I don't think anyone can argue with this, uh, this stellar top five. Um, but just let's let's poke around a little bit more and find out uh, what films were winning trophies and making money. Uh, let's turn it over to Mike for some awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah, sell out with me tonight. The record company's only... Sean did very well. Yeah. This year, the Academy agreed with him in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah Cuckoo's Nest checks a lot of boxes. Yeah, yeah the, the, the first movie covered the entire ceremony, I believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, they took Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Jack Nicholson, Best Actress for Louise Fletcher, and Best Screenplay Adapted. And I gotta say, I, I don't, I can't, I can't really complain about any of those. I can complain about a lot. I can't really complain about that. <laughs> no. no, and that's one of okay. Is it three movies that have swept the big five? It's that. Uh, it happened one night, and and Silence of the Lambs. Am I? Am I? Silence of the yeah, Lambs. Yeah. yeah. One of one of the three to sweep one of the big three to sweep the big five. What else from from Sean's list and elsewhere? That is partially sort of softened by the fact that adapted screenplay went to Cuckoo's Nest, original went to Dog Day Afternoon, which in some way makes me feel I don't know. It's just like honey in the tea for some reason. Yeah, the tea didn't need honey. 
but I'm not right. mad that he has some money, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it is a weird, like I'm always thrown by those where it's like the, the Oscar for original screenplay, but it's based on a true story. So it's right. kind of not original, <laughs> but it's not based on like a book about it or some shit. So it's somehow an original screen, but that's fine. That's fine. I've seen the other nominees. It's fine. That can win. It's fine. Uh, a cinnamon stick in your tea yeah. uh, is the best supporting actor going to George Burns for the sunshine boys. Uh, however Sh- you feel about Sean- the movie you can't be mad yeah. about that yeah I mean, yeah it's fine you know so you get the career uh yes one of those career achievement awards you know that's what these things are it's a movie. lovely george burns performance although i will say my favorite george burns film performance i believe is four years later in going in style he's really really fucking good in going in style uh I'm speaking, of course, about the original and not the already forgotten Zach Braff helmed remake. What else did well at the uh, at the Oscars uh, that year, Mike? Best supporting actress went to Lee Grant for Shampoo. This is a good list. Hey, oh. Shampoo. Which would have Sean been number is- six. Like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, best original score went to Jaws. Really? I don't. I, I, hang on. I don't. I don't remember. I don't recall the Jaws <laughs> score. I don't. Doesn't <laughs> yeah, sound familiar. No. no. Oh, okay. uh, maybe, go ahead. Go ahead. Go what, find what it a, on Google. I'll Shazam it here in a minute. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, and best original song went to "I'm Easy" from Nashville, which had oh, to be. That a is a good. Mm-hmm. That's a good fucking Oscar right there. That's a really good one. Uh, all right, Mike. What else did well at some of the other award ceremonies? Sunshine Boys did good at the Golden Globes. They won Best Picture, Best yep. Actor for Walter Matthau in a musical comedy. Best Supporting Actor went to Richard Benjamin in that film, not George Burns. Okay. Uh, right. And Cuckoo's Nest won Picture, Actor, Actress in a Drama, plus Director and Screenplay. Lord have mercy. Did the, five, did, did the big five at the Golden Globes as well. Okay. They had to what buy else? some extra supports for their award shelves. Uh, Once is Not Enough won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress for Brenda Vaccaro. Have you seen Once is Not Enough, Sean? This this is the first I've heard of it. Me too. Me too. All right. Whatever. Go on. Well, if Bailey hasn't seen it, there's very little chance I've seen it. So uh, I won't feel bad. We'll carry on with that. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, The BAFTAs were on the British release schedule, so they didn't have their Cuckoo's Nest sweep until the following year. Most of this year's wins were for films released in the U.S. in 74, but Al Pacino won Best Actor for both Dog Day Afternoon and Godfather 2. The BAFTAs reserved the right to be confusing. Still, that's a that's a sweet trophy to win yeah. for both Dog Day Afternoon and Godfather Two. That's nice. That's like that's every nice. other actor a- should retire. <laughs> yes, <laughs> these are the complete exactly. opposite registers of an actor, too. <laughs> no fucking kidding. And uh, Barry Lyndon won the Bef- BAFTA for Best Director because, of course, Ooh. it did. <laughs> of course, it did. Sean, uh, how do you feel about Barry Lyndon? I love Barry Lyndon. That would have been on. I mean, it was really hard to narrow it down. Like, I mean, I think Barry Lyndon is yeah. fucking hilarious. It is. <laughs> and I was so shocked. I I'll, like, I'll own this. I didn't see Barry Lyndon. And whenever the Criterion Blu-ray came out, like, I don't know, three or four years ago, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe was the first time I'd seen Barry Lyndon because all I'd ever seen were these like 
uh, you know, distinguished looking stills. And I was just like, this movie looks boring. I don't know if I want to watch it. And well, then the, it like, you know, it, the reputation on that movie has done a total 180. Like, I mean, we were in right. college, like that was considered a bad film. That was like his flop. That was yeah. his, his Kubrick's folly. And then I, I put it on and I'm like, yeah. I remember renting and watching it in college. The first five minutes, I was laughing my ass off. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. This movie's fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's extremely funny and strange and uh, and just it, pun- it sucker punches you the whole way through. I love Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what was uh, what was what were the doings in the box office top 10 for 75, Mike? Oh, man. Uh, it's going to take us a while to get back around to the, the films we were talking about. <laughs> the good <Number> stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's an easier way to say that. The Apple Dumpling Gang. Yeah. Apple Dumpling Gang? Oh, God. I, yeah. well, I remember, yeah. like, really liking it when I was in second grade. Like uh, you know. Exactly, exactly. We were the target audience in second grade <laughs> for that. That Don Knotts and Tim Conway uh, team up. Yeah, collab. <laughs> As the kids say, uh, is it a classic Knotts Knotts Conway collab? Go right okay. ahead, Mike. Well, now I know all about it. Then uh, number nine was <laughs> yeah. Tommy. Uh, where do you land on this one, Sean? You know, it's all it's, it's always on late at night, and it's never as good as you want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect mini review. Keep moving. Yep. <laughs> number eight was the other side of the mountain. I have never seen the other side of the mountain, uh, Sean. Or was that the, was that like a Sydney Sheldon? Uh... That sounds right. That sounds right. Yes. No idea. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's like one okay. of like the the books like my mom had that I would scan to look for the dirty parts. Like I think that was <laughs> <laughs> number seven. Funny lady. I've also never seen Funny Lady, but that's the either. one where. It's Babs and Jimmy Kahn. We should we should we should check that one out for uh, for for Jim. Uh, end of tweet. <laughs> Number six, three days of the Condor. Okay, that's yeah, a good. That's, that's a motion a picture. One. That's a good. Yeah, that's yeah. a solid solid uh, top three Pollock. I would say. Yeah. Uh, Certainly yeah. less boring than most Sydney Pollock movies. <laughs> there you go. Wow, because it sounds like uh, the movie that got Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Conan series, but that's just, you know, based on the title. It's a very good spy thriller with Robert Redford, Mike, and and Faye Dunaway, uh, and some fine fine mid-70s New York photography. So there we go. Nice costumes and hair throughout. Yes, very much so. Wow, I really missed the boat on Condor. Number five, Return of the Pink Panther. Okay, now this one is funny. This is one of the funny ones. I can't tell any of them apart. <laughs> <laughs> See, I I had a gig for a while at a DVD review site, and I got assigned uh, a box set. So I watched all of them in the space of about a week. And I can tell you very clearly the, the, the funny ones and the not nearly as funny ones. And this is one of the last my- week I was having lunch with our friend, Matt Perget, and he'd watched them all over yeah. the pandemic. And he was explaining the differences between them. And I was just sort of, my eyes were glazing over. I was like, sure. I, <laughs> I know no, I've seen them all. <laughs> in all seriousness, it's wild. Cause it is like a multi-film series that has like three good entries, but this is one of them. This is one of them. It's very funny. Number four was Dog Day Afternoon. There we go. Number three was Shampoo. There we go. Number two, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 
See, this is see, this is how they used to do. This is what okay. I was saying. Better audiences. Yep. And number one, two hundred and sixty million dollars. The shark movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Jaws, Jaws, yeah. Jaws famously brought in a buck or two in the in the year of our Lord nineteen seventy five. Okay, so there's right. a note here because Jason oh, Jason okay. cannot get enough of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So uh, <laughs> no, I so think Jason's... this is important to like. It's a literal asterisk to the chart, so we gotta like you know we gotta dive into this footnote. It's important. It is interesting, and it scratches your Rocky Horror itch. It's fine. These yeah. are the 1975 grosses. When you figure yes. in lifetime gross, you have to deal with Rocky Horror, which originally tanks yes. but began its midnight screening shortly thereafter and would ultimately gross $112 million domestic, which puts it second only to Jaws in overall gross. It had a long time to make that much money. But it did eventually make that much money. So it's, it's number a, it two. It didn't make any money in 1975, though. Not a fucking dime. Everyone was like, what the <laughs> fuck is this? All right, Mike, thank you for the for the awards and the grosses. Um, we're a little behind, but I can't I can't just give you five. Sean, are you up for a 10-minute lightning round? Because I yeah, am. Sure, yeah. Here we go. All right. So uh, Mike's going to put 10 minutes on the big clock for us. If you've seen it, uh, give me a quick hit on what you think. If you haven't or you don't care to comment, just pass and we move on. 10 minutes on the clock. Mike, you ready? Ding, 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 ding. Here we go. All right. Uh, The Passenger. Another one. It sucked to leave off my top five. Just great, great film. I'll never figure out how they did the final shot. And... uh, (laughs) What like what a year for Nicholson. Like again, you're talking about the, yeah. those Pacino diametrically opposed Godfather yeah. and Dog Day. I mean, this is Nicholson in an entirely different register. Just, you know, he's like this found object for well, everyone was a found object for Antonioni. Yeah. But just yeah. this beautiful alienation, this hollowed out husk. It's uh, it's a transporting film. I love I love it to death. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. A movie I had actually recorded on an <laughs> audio cassette and used to play yes. in my Walkman on long car trips to see my grandparents. I could probably <laughs> still recite it, but you don't want to hear that. <laughs> Federico Fellini's Amacord. <laughs> That's weird because it was 73 in Italy. Like we talked about this when I was making the list because it would yes. have been very high up on my top five if. Uh, you know what? Look, God damn it! This is an American podcast, <laughs> USA, USA. This podcast bleeds red, white, and blue. We go by American release dates. I don't want to hear your 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 goddamn Italian release date. Tell me what you think of Armor Court, Sean. It's absolutely magical. Uh, the, there's it's the mo- another just completely transporting film and the more i see every filmmaker now has to make a movie about their childhood <laughs> the more i'm like watch fucking amacord guys because it's also about creeping fascism and the infantilism <laughs> of the brown shirts in mussolini's italy and you know and there's no you know <laughs> We don't have all this nonsense about movies or magic. Instead, it's just kids who <laughs> like girls with big tits. <laughs> I will say Amicord is the best gateway drug to get young boys into foreign films. Yes. I know this not yes. only from experience, but I watched it with my, my nephew when he was 12. 
and he still <laughs> talks about it two years later. <laughs> the point where my sister was like, what the hell are you showing him? <laughs> the Stepford Wives. Yeah, I haven't seen it in 100 years, but I remember it being funny. Like, you know, better better than the Olivia Wilde movie. There you go. Um, the Yakuza, another Pollock, weirdly. I know, and Pollock and Schrader, which is not a good... <laughs> so those nope. Two great tastes that don't go... Still a weirdly, weirdly compelling movie with this great, like, late Mitchum kind of boozy, regretful... You see where later stuff developed. It's one of those movies. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich's At Long Last Love. I know we're supposed to like this movie now, but I still don't. <laughs> There's this whole revisionist rescue mission on this thing, and I think it's just dreadful. <laughs> George Roy Hill's The Great Waldo Pepper. I know I've seen it, and I remember nothing about it. It used to be on TV all the time. Joan Micklin Silver's Hester Street. Oh, yeah, that that's really good. I haven't seen the new restoration, but I remember, yeah, another Carol Kane movie. Yeah, yeah she had a nice year. She, her and Jack and Al. Um, <laughs> Michael Ritchie's Smile. Oh, yeah, that's been like too long. I, I have no, I can say nothing useful on that. Have you seen Rancho Deluxe? I have not. And, you know, it's always lingering there on the Amazon Prime menu. And I was like, <laughs> I need to watch that someday. That see, It seems like something I would enjoy. I saw it for the first time, I don't know, maybe a year ago when Fun City Editions brought it out on Blu-ray. And, Sean, it is a fucking gem. It is so <laughs> good. You are going to love this movie. Also starring Jeff Bridges, have you seen Hearts of the West? I have not. No, I don't know what that is. It's another one to seek out. Report to the commissioner. Have you seen this one? I have not. It's been on a list for a long time that I've just never gotten to. Pam Greer in Sheba Baby. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> <laughs> Duh, you know me, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pam Greer and uh, Fred Williamson in Bucktown. Have you mm -hmm. seen this one? Yeah, I, yeah, just assume yes for the Pam Greer title so we can keep it. <laughs> Rudy Ray Moore as Dolomite. Of course, yes. <laughs> where where do you land on this one, Sean? Oh, I love it. I, I might like the Eddie Murphy version better. <laughs> uh, Jack Hill's Switchblade Sisters. Oh, God. You know, I had Switchblade Sisters. I had the Rolling Thunder uh, yeah. VHS introduced by Quentin. Yes. Who was all excited because explaining that it's actually the plot of Othello. Yes. And he did like the wacky introduction. I think he pronounces Iago wrong. Yes. <laughs> Correct. It's like, and she's totally Iago. And I was like, I love this. Guy. <laughs> uh, have you seen Russ Meyer's Super Vixens? I've not seen Super Vixens. That's one of my blind spots. I've seen a lot of them. I. I have two, and I have not seen that one. We'll have a we'll have a watch party. Uh, Death Race two thousand came out in nineteen seventy five. Incredible movie! <laughs> one of the great theatrical experiences. The Brattle Theater here in Cambridge did a a uh, Corman retrospective, and the only print they could get of Death Race two thousand had Swedish subtitles, <laughs> which made it so much better. And they just got just gotten their license to start selling alcohol. So that whole retrospective was yes. just this drunken free for all. But you're watching like the <laughs> the back half of a double bill and it's Death Race 2000 with Swedish subtitles. And it was like, this is the magic of going to the movies. 
Hell yes. Uh, in the year 1975, Sean, I don't know if you know this, but we had a pair of Peter Fonda Warren Oates pair-ups. We had Race with the Devil and mm-hmm. 92 in the Shade. Uh, thoughts on either of those if you've seen them? I liked Race with the Devil a lot. I've read 92 in the Shade. I don't think I've seen the movie, though. You're one of the few people I know, Sean, who can say I've read that and haven't seen the movie. Like, you're, <laughs> very few of my friends are are wired that way. Well, it's the, yeah, it's the McGoin book, right? It's, uh, I have yeah, it yeah, somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a Florida, Florida weirdo shit, right? Like, <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's a beautiful, uh, rich subgenre, Florida weirdo shit. Uh, Walking Tall Part Two joined the world of cinema in 1975. Now these are on like all the time, like back to back. But that's the one. Isn't is he dead in that one? Or like it's like a flashback. <laughs> like the, the chronology of that series got so confusing to me. Yeah, I do not. I do know that it's that is when Bo Svensson took over the series. I do remember that much. I thought that was the third one, right? Or was it the? Oh shit! Okay, I don't know. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, we usually keep TV movies out of the lightning round, but I will tell you that this was the year that Trilogy of Terror debuted uh if you've seen that one yeah again too long ago to gotcha uh woody allen's love and death released in 1975 another one that would have made my list if we were allowed to talk about how much we like woody allen movies anymore (laughs) 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 and what like that was like the beginning of realizing what a great filmmaker he was going to become because what a beautiful production that movie is like it just it is comedies look like so slapdash and that movie is gorgeous it looks it looks like any period piece of the era. Yes. And then there's boob jokes. And, um, and the, the wheat, the wheat gag is like the best Terrence Malick parody <laughs> before Terrence Malick even made, made any of those movies. <laughs> All right. Uh, Tarkovsky's mirror. Yeah. I, I got nothing. Swept away. The original, not the, uh, yeah. Guy oh Ritchie yeah. Well, did, wait, didn't she all, wasn't seven beauties the same year too? It may well have been. Oh, shit. I do not know. Again, I, you know, USA, USA, USA. Um, <laughs> no, I, I love Lena Vermeer. I, I was really worried that, like, when she got that honorary Oscar, like, all the children were going to discover her and we were going to be in for, like, some sort of, like, book burning ceremonies or something. <laughs> Somehow that didn't happen. We all escaped unscathed and we can watch that. Or... Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> Sean, three Charles Bronson movies are going to wrap up the lightning round. Three movies that I that I I love every damn one of these because this is him cashing in his Death Wish blank check. Uh, None of these movies made any money, and he ended up making Death Wish movies and rip off for the rest of his career, as discussed on a whole other podcast. But this year, 1975, saw the release of Hard Times, Breakheart Pass and breakout have you seen any of these oh of course i've seen all of them <laughs> yay <laughs> and and hard times is just an unimpeachable all-timer fucking all-timer all, yeah coburn like come on we got a movie with charles yes. bonson and james coburn directed by walter yes. hill <laughs> yes what else do i need to say people <laughs> oh it's about bare knuckle boxing <laughs> Oh, in the depression? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I guess I'm watching it. And it's yeah. like 90 minutes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you even like movies? Welcome to Hard Time. 
<laughs> and with that, we close down the lightning round. Fine work, Sean Burns. Well, thank you. Fine thank work you for indeed. having me. <laughs> indeed. All right. So before we go, uh, where can folks uh, read your stuff, hear your musings, follow you, and that sort of thing? I keep a website where I aggregate everything at uh, www.splicedpersonality.com. And I link to every article I write there. I'm always being an asshole on Twitter. <laughs> They're not going to take it away from me, damn it. <laughs> I don't care that we've switched narcissistic asshole millionaire owners. <laughs> this is my place to alienate people. <laughs> to be a snide gatekeeper. Exactly. As usual, we, we, we thank you for listening. We ask you, please rate, review, tell your friends, tweet about it, whatever. We're a young, uh, uh, vibrant indie startup podcast we need your support we need your ratings we need your reviews you can follow i'm occasionally on twitter now sort of jason dash bailey on twitter i'm fun city cinema on instagram mike where can people follow you brainwashed lib on twitter and mike before we go what is your favorite movie of the year 1975 i gotta go with let's do it again man ah! i like uptown saturday night i like that whole like i know they're not really a trilogy but to me they're a trilogy i know some of the people in them we don't like anymore but i you know I I talk about people we can't talk about being funny anymore jesus christ now, i thought i was gonna get in trouble for the woody allen shit <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, that's a fucking great movie, man. I'm sorry, everybody. Like, I'm sorry to the victims. That's a great movie. How about you, Jason? Uh, at risk of going with the obvious one, man, like for years of my teens, Jaws was my favorite movie of all time, period. I gotta, I've probably seen it more than any other movie. Uh, again, I saw it literally in the womb, so I gotta go with Jaws. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you again, Sean. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very 